And we're looking at these portraits to help us grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and to help us prepare for the celebration of his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Last week, Pastor John did a masterful job, helped us see how God promised to rescue his people from anguish through the son that he has given. This week, I want us to jump ahead to uh, chapter 49. Uh, sorry, chapter 42. Sorry, this next week is chapter 49. <laughs> this week, I want us to examine the next song in Isaiah. And this means jumping to chapter 42, where circumstances have changed. And in chapter 9, as we learned last week, Israel faced the threat of an impending Assyrian invasion. But by chapter 42, Isaiah is writing in anticipation of Israel's coming captivity in Babylon. So our main idea today, if you have a handout, it'll be across the top. Our main idea for this sermon is the Lord will create a righteous people through his compassionate servant. The Lord will create a righteous people through his compassionate servant. So our plan today is first, because I've nearly forgotten, but don't worry, we shall not forget, we'll pray. <laughs> then after we pray, I'm going to offer some context, and then we're going to proceed through this text by asking four questions. We're going to ask, who is the servant? What is his mission? How will he do it? And to what purpose, or why? Why will he do it? But before we get any further in the matter, please pause, let's pray. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, I am a weak servant, and we need your help. We need the help of your servant and his spirit. Please come among us. Illumine your word for us. Help us to see your truth, to believe it as your truth, to see your servant high and lifted up as the righteous one. Help our hearts to believe in him, to love him, be restored by him, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. First, context. Context. And this is going to have to hold true for all these sermons that we're giving as we're in Isaiah. Reading prophecy is like looking sometimes at distant mountain ranges. So, in Denver, as you look up to the mountains, there's a short row of hills that they call the hogback, and that's this foothills. And then behind that, you can see taller hills. And behind that, you can see really tall mountains. When you're looking at prophecy, it's kind of like that. Now, when you're looking at mountains, distant mountains, some things are clear. Is you can see certain things very clearly. But some things are not so clear. They're either hidden by the clouds or they're obscured by other things, like some mountains are in front of other mountains or they're hidden by trees. And there are some things that, as any of you know, if you've ever tried to hike a mountain of any great size, there's some things that are simply invisible until you're in them. There's things that you'll look at and you'll be convinced that that's the summit, that's the peak. And you get there and you discover that is not the peak. There is another one. And you get there, and you think, surely this one. And it isn't. Um, so there's, there's things that are very clear in prophecy, 
There are things that are less clear in prophecy, and there's some things in prophecy that are invisible. We, don't, we won't see them until we're actually in the middle of it. In Isaiah 42, you can see different ranges. You can see things that are, for us, already. You can see some other things that are not quite yet. But the servant songs in general in the book of Isaiah focus more often on the foothills than on those great final mountains. They're focused on the first coming of the Messiah, is what I mean by that. That's, that's what's clear in a lot of them. Now, it keeps some of those distant things, his return, in view, but the focus is on these closer hills. Let's just take a, an example. Maybe you'll see what I mean. In Isaiah chapter 61, which we will preach on, the prophet speaks for the servant, the servant of these servant songs. In verses 1 and 2, the prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Some of you probably recognize that passage. You might recognize it from Isaiah, but you might recognize it from Luke. When Jesus quotes this very passage in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he's in a synagogue, he brings the scroll out, and he quotes it, but he stops mid-sentence. You'll remember he leaves out, and the day of vengeance of our God. And this is not because Jesus was ignoring God's vengeance. In fact, Jesus speaks more commonly and more clearly about God's vengeance than any other biblical figure. It's because at that moment, what he wanted us to focus on was the nearer mountain range. He wanted us to focus on what his ministry was in his first coming. So friends, whenever you're reading prophecy, it's a good idea to sort of zoom in and zoom out and to remember both the narrow and the more immediate as well as the broader and more ultimate senses of God in his word. So that's some context for prophecy. That said, let's focus on this prophecy. Let's begin. Let's begin with a series of questions. The first is, who is the servant? And the answer is, he's the Messiah. He's the eternal Son of God. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you're able to follow along with me. We're going to look in chapter 42. If you see in verse 1, you will notice that in this passage, we are a privileged audience to God the Father displaying his pleasure and his confidence in his eternal Son. In this passage, God the Father, as it were, parades his son before Isaiah, and he tells him what he's going to do when he comes to live in the world. Now, if you've read the book of Isaiah, then you know that Isaiah has already met this servant in chapter 6, when he's caught up in a vision, and it says he saw the Lord 
high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, we know that it was Jesus that Isaiah saw in that vision because the Apostle John tells us so. When he quotes that very passage from Isaiah 6, he quotes it in John chapter 12, verse 41. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory. He spoke of him. Now that vision, if you remember it in Isaiah 6, is so intense. And Isaiah's understanding of God's holiness is so clear that Isaiah thought he would die. What a contrast we find here in chapter 42, verse 1, where it appears that the same person is described in a very different way. Here he is described as God's servant. He says, behold, my servant. So whose ministry is going to be characterized by the most gentle and the most humble of behavior. And at first glance, servant seems to be a weak name to call the one that Isaiah met in the temple and before whom he felt as though he would surely be undone. But as we read through the Bible, we find that this servant, who comes by several names, whether he be the angel of the Lord, or whether he's called the Son of God, he is no mere lackey. He's not heaven's gopher. Rather, he is the one who accomplishes everything the Father wills. Even the mighty act of creation is in, through, and for this eternal servant. Indeed, this servant is entrusted with all that the Father will ever do. And so in one sense, there is no greater title to be had than the servant of the Lord. Now look and see what utter confidence and what pleasure God has in the one he presents to Isaiah. He says, this is my chosen one. This is the one I take delight in. This is the one to whom I give my spirit without measure. At this point, it's helpful for us to get some more context. It's helpful for us to look back at the end of chapter 41. If you have your Bibles, you can flip or I'll put up there on the screen, verse 21, the Lord is speaking, and he says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. So here, God, the one who stands as the real sovereign, ruler of Israel, above and beyond their fleeting, periodic kings, has been building a case against the rulers and the idols that Israel has been trusting in. And that's what he says. He says, bring forth your proofs that your rulers and your idols have some substance or meaning. And look how he concludes his case in verse 28 and 29. He says, but when I look, this is God speaking, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor whom when I ask gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. 
So it is after this wholesale rejection of Israel's rulers and Israel's idols that we find the Father presents the only one in whom he can delight. You see, I, I take no delight in your rulers. I take no delight in your idols. We even see, ultimately, he takes no delight in the people themselves. So he presents this his servant. This is one of two main reasons that we know that Isaiah now, in chapter 42, is no longer speaking collectively about the people of Israel, like he did in chapter 41. I bring this up because there's, you know, if you have a Jewish friend, they probably believe that the servant in these songs refers to Israel corporately, the nation of Israel. It's poetic language, but I don't think that's true. So two reasons we know that Isaiah is no longer speaking collectively about the people of Israel like he did in chapter 41. First reason, because God does not take unqualified delight in the nation of Israel. Because God does not take unqualified delight in the nation of Israel or indeed any of sinful humanity. The Bible makes it plain that there is nothing inherent about this particular people, Israel, or indeed any of sinful humanity, not a person in this room. There's nothing inherent in them that can attract the choice or the delight of the living and holy God. Instead, here, finally, is one in whom the Father takes delight. The second reason is because the New Testament tells us so. And that should theoretically settle the argument. Because the Father uses this exact language that we find in chapter 42, verse 1. If you looked at the Greek translation of that passage, you would see it transposed to describe Jesus at his baptism in Matthew 3, and again at his transfiguration in Matthew 17. The first phrase, this is my beloved son, is from Psalm 2 with whom I am well pleased, is from Isaiah 42. The servant of Isaiah 42 is not the nation of Israel. It is the holy God of Isaiah 6. It is the eternal son of the Gospels. Friends, this is critical because God takes unqualified pleasure in no one else besides Christ. He loves the church because of Jesus Christ, who makes the church clean. God accepts us in his presence only if we are in Jesus Christ. Friends, God has only anger and rejection for those who are outside of his chosen and beloved Son. The Father does not delight in anything that we could ever do, anything that we could ever be apart from Christ. Instead, God takes true, unqualified delight only in the one who always does all his holy will, his eternal Son, and those who by faith are united to him. Friends, the servant of God is the only one who can explain how God could ever choose or have regard for any of us in our sinfulness. 
So the, ancient, the, the uh, older commentator, the Puritan Matthew Henry, famous for his commentary on the whole scriptures, says, let our souls delight in Christ, rely on him, and rejoice in him, and thus let us be united to him, and then for his sake, the Father will be well pleased with us. In other words, the most tangible application, and honestly, if there was nothing else you got from this sermon, this, this is probably the nub. We should imitate the Father's high regard for Jesus. If we want the Father to regard us well, we should regard Jesus the way that God the Father sees his beloved Son. Who is the servant? He is the only one in whom the Father takes unqualified delight. He is the eternal Son of God. So, we know who the servant is. What is the servant's mission? To create a righteous community. The servant's mission here is to create a righteous community. Look at verses 1, 3, and 4. I'll have them up on the screen here. Behold my servant, verse 1, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So the servant is sent into the world to bring forth justice. Not just in Israel, did you notice, but to the nations, to the ends of the earth. Now, when we hear justice, we tend to think of what philosophers call retributive justice, meaning we think of courts, we think of punishments, we think of lawsuits, making things fair and equal. But the idea of justice in Scripture, true justice, the word in Hebrew is mishpat. While it is not less than fair courts and good laws, it certainly is fair courts and good laws, it goes beyond having good laws to being a just society. So one commentator puts it this way. John Oswalt said, it is that life-giving order which exists when creation is functioning in accordance with the design of its Lord. So what is disease? Disease is when your body is not working all according to its right function. Something is breaking down. Something is not behaving the way it ought to. That's injustice. Justice is when the body is at health and strength. As strength and health are to the body, so justice is to society. So is mishpat to the community. So mishpat, justice, is both God's good commands, but it is also what it means to be a part of a community that keeps those good commands. So it's the good commands of God, and it's the experience of being part of a community that keeps and loves those good commands. It is then communal covenant faithfulness. And it is one of God's goals for all of his creation. 
Last week, I, Pastor John talked about shalom, peace, wholeness, all at rightness. You can't have shalom without mishpat. You can't have peace without justice. It's all strung together. But critically, such wholeness cannot be realized apart from the servant's work. Because without righteousness, there can't be justice. Righteousness, the Hebrew word is tzedek, is personal faithfulness to God and to his covenant. It is the necessary basis for mishpat. It's like the concrete foundation of your house. You can put a whole bunch of sticks on some mud and see if that holds for a long time, but it won't. Community faithfulness can only exist if individuals love and obey and follow the commands of God. So Isaiah says in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Zion, refers to the community of Israel, shall be redeemed by justice, mishpat. And those in her who repent, the individuals, by righteousness, dedek. So, Israel and all of sinful humanity lack justice, meaning our communities are broken. Our communities do not work right. There is war in the world. We hurt one another. There is injustice. The courts are broken. We lack justice because we are not righteous. We have been unfaithful to God's law. We have been unfaithful to God's covenant. And so in order to bring forth justice, in order to bring forth that community of righteousness, the servant has to create righteous people. He has to create a righteous community. So that brings us to the third question. We know who the servant is. He's the eternal son of God. What's his mission? He needs to, he's going to create a righteous community. Well, how's he going to do it? by becoming a covenant for his people. So from verses 2 through 7, we see a stack of different explanations for how it is that the servant's going to do this. The first is, he's not going to do this by relying on force. So look in verse 2. It says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. What this means is that the servant will not silence others in order to make himself heard. It means he won't make a song and dance of his ministry. It means he won't rely on conventional political power to squash public discourse so as to proclaim his gospel or enforce his will. And in America, we're, we're proud of the fact that our press is an open press, a free press, as it were. But in other countries, we know that the press is not free. They, they don't just get to print anything. And traditionally, throughout history, that's how rulers control the conversation. You can't just say anything in the streets. The Bible says Jesus is not going to be like that. He's not going to make it so you just, well, you just can't say things that you think. Uh, my voice is the only voice that's going to be heard. Obviously, this passage doesn't mean that Jesus didn't preach outdoors. You know, he's not going to raise up his voice in the street. No, Jesus obviously did that in Matthew 5 through 7 and the Sermon on the Mount. He would, have, he would have gone to the speaker's corner of his day. What it means is he didn't use worldly means to pursue worldly fame. 
Jesus didn't use worldly means to pursue worldly fame. He didn't set up a business called Jesus End Time Deliverance Ministries. He, he didn't set up a marketing strategist to, to try and send out pamphleteers in front of him. He didn't have warm-up artists before he did the Sermon on the Mount so that everybody was ready for Jesus when he steps up. Like, in fact, this little verse here in Isaiah helps us better understand why it is that Jesus often told people that he healed to keep quiet about what they had seen. He didn't want his primary mission, which is to save sinners from their sin, to be missed. He didn't want the gospel to be reduced to mere miracles. And this holds true in our day. Friends, thank God, one day our Lord will raise his voice in the streets. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, with the cry of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet, every other voice will be silenced. One day our Lord will raise his voice in the streets. And one day our Lord will heal every single wound. But that is not how... He means for us to think about his gospel advancing as though God intends the church to grow by clever marketing or as though he wants his church to gain ground by using political force. Instead, the church is to imitate Christ's humility by living ordinary faithful lives, by being an outpost, ambassadors of that coming kingdom, by telling the people that we know and that we meet in our ordinary, everyday lives about the goodness and the grace of God. He won't rely on force. But secondly, he will do it with unfailing compassion. In verses 3 and 4, it says, A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. If you're looking for an older book that would help you think deeply on this passage, Richard Sibbs' famous book, A Bruised Reed, might be helpful here. To be bruised in Hebrew is more than a bump on the arm. The word means a deep contusion. It is a severe blow that would damage or destroy an internal organ. In some cases, this word means to be dealt a death blow. These, then, are broken people. These are people whose hope has almost gone out. These are people who feel as though they do not have the strength to go on. And certainly, at the time, it would have spoken to Israel, who was in Babylon, under a pagan empire, the temple burned to the ground, the city reduced to rubble, and with all hope of their identity, it seems, perished. The prophet in their midst describing the glory of God leaving the temple and departing to the east, feeling as though they have no hope, no identity, and nothing left. Certainly these people felt broken. But he speaks to all. This is, these are the people that Christ comes for. Christ comes for the broken. 
Now, on the one hand, this reiterates what we said above, that the servant will not use force in order to advance his gospel. He won't break people so that they will obey him. His kingdom will not be built on the backs of the oppressed. His kingdom will not be like the kingdom of Babylon. His kingdom is not like the pagan kingdoms of the world, crushed by his law. But it also means that this servant, unlike the rulers of men, is compassionate and he is tender. He comes to the aid of such hurting and broken people. And he will not, by his life, by his words, by his ministry, break them or extinguish their hopes. This, I think, anticipates what Jesus says of his ministry in Matthew 11, 28 and 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. In our day, we are filled with many different physicians. And if, you, if you're struggling with your emotions, you might go and see some, a counselor. You know, if you're struggling with your body, you might go see a doctor. If you're struggling with the soul, you might go see a pastor. And each one of these might try and apply some remedy here or there. And you know, many of us know probably all too well that sometimes doctors give bad prescriptions. Sometimes counselors say things that are unhelpful. Sometimes pastors don't know what to do, or sometimes they go too far or not far enough. The dose makes the poison in many cases. And treating brokenness is an incredibly complicated thing. Jesus always knows the correct dose. He always knows exactly what you need. And he gives you precisely what you need. We also know that some doctors don't always just uh, give us a, a pill or a medicine. Sometimes they have to be a surgeon. They have to actually do, in a sense, harm in order that they may do good. And Christ is a good surgeon. He knows exactly when and to what degree he must work on us. He is the great physician. He knows how to tend our wounded souls without breaking our spirit. He knows when we need a gentle touch. He knows when we require surgery. He knows the dose. He knows the prescription. So friend, take heart. If you were at all like me, and far more commonly think of yourself as, Lord, I am too great a sinner to be received into your great kingdom. Christ came for the broken. Christ came for those who feel as though they have no hope. Jesus is patient. Jesus is compassionate with us in our weakness. Jesus will not leave us crushed under our sin. He will heal you by his mercy, and he can make you whole. But let us not mistake his compassion for weakness. Again, look at verse 4. It says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. By using the same roots for the verbs that he used in verse 3, Isaiah assures us that the same force that would bruise and blight us cannot break or ultimately extinguish him. He will not break others, and he himself will not be broken. And he will not extinguish others, 
and he himself will not be extinguished. Where? Where does he find such power that though all the world's forces are thrown at him, he will not break and he will not be extinguished? By relying on God's strength, by the third way that he brings this kingdom, by relying on God's strength. Verses 5 and 6, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. The reason that the servant will succeed in this ministry is because he walks hand in hand with almighty God. Because the same power that created the heavens and the earth is his. Because the father who determined to uphold him so his eternal purpose of grace will succeed. He will succeed by relying on God's strength. Fourthly, by becoming a covenant for his people. In verse 6, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. This means not just that the servant will mediate a new covenant, though he will, like Moses did, going between God and man. Rather, it is that he will live in such a way that so satisfies God's glorious requirements that he could be said to be the covenant. Edward Young, another commentator, puts it this way. He says, such that all the blessings of the covenant are embodied in, have their root and origin in, and are dispensed by him. At the same time, he is himself at the center of all these blessings. And to receive them is to receive him. For without him, there can be no blessings. So friends, unlike the covenant of the law, the covenant that Israel broke, the covenant that no human being could ever satisfy because of our sin, unlike those covenants, there is, in a sense, only one term to the covenant of the Lord's servant. Are you in Christ? That is the term of his covenant. Because he is the covenant. Only in Christ, only in the one who is the resurrection and the life, will we find life and strength and sight and freedom. The fifth way that he's going to bring this great mission to pass is by delivering his people from spiritual bondage and blindness. You can see that in the second half of verse 6, leading into verse 7. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So here we see that the servant will save his people by addressing their most basic need, by saving them not just from exile, which certainly is what the Israelites would have seen as their most basic need, we need to get out of Babylon. We need to go home. And Isaiah is trying to lift their eyes higher than even the exile to see something greater. He's not just saving them from exile or from disability or from political oppression, but from spiritual bondage and sinful blindness. 
Now, while we know that his regeneration and his renewal will one day extend to every aspect of our lives, we know that Jesus is going to fix everything one day. He's going to fix every physical problem. He's going to fix every political problem. He's going to fix every social problem. Every aspect of society will one day be addressed by the regeneration and renewal of our Lord. But his first and his most essential work is to free us from spiritual bondage and blindness to which we are enslaved. And that's because the sinful depravity of every human being as a result of Adam's sin has so thoroughly infected every part of our condition that it is, humanly speaking, inescapable. This is why Jesus can say to the Pharisees in John 11, who could see physically that they were blind? We are like them, all born spiritually blind. We are as incapable of seeing or savoring the glory of God or rightly responding to God's word as a deaf man could respond to a symphony or as a fish might breathe air. Our hearts are so set that apart from his grace, we are unwilling and unable to see or respond rightly to God unless God works in us by a work of his grace through the servant, which is why it is both necessary and why it is gloriously wonderful that this servant the one in whom God truly delights, the one who walks hand in hand with the Almighty, comes to weak and wounded sinners, people like us who are broken and almost without hope, bruised and broken by the fall. And why it is wonderful that in his mercy, he does not break us with his justice. Instead, he heals us by his grace. I'm burning up time, but I, I want to read you this passage from one of my favorite books. I know you, you, some of you will know what I'm doing already from Pilgrim's Progress. I identify so strongly with Hopeful, and he gives this testimony. Pilgrim, as they're walking along the road, they have time to pass, and he says, how did you come to see Christ? And Hopeful tells this story, and I think it might illustrate what Isaiah is talking about. Hopeful says, speaking of Christ, I did not see him with my bodily eyes, but with the eyes of my understanding. And thus it was. One day I was very sad. I think sadder than at any one time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and the vileness of my sins. And as I was then looking for nothing but hell and the everlasting damnation of my soul, suddenly as I thought, I saw the Lord Jesus Christ look down from heaven upon me and say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But I replied, Lord, I am a great, a very great sinner. And he answered, My grace is sufficient for thee. And then I said, But Lord, what is believing? And then I saw from that saying, he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst, that believing and coming was all one. And that he that came, that is, ran out in his heart and affections after salvation by Christ, he indeed believed in Christ. So I asked further, but Lord, may such a great sinner as I am be indeed accepted of thee, 
and be saved by thee. And I heard him say, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And then I said, but how, Lord, must I consider upon thee in my coming to thee that my faith may be placed rightly upon thee? And he said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He died for our sins and rose again for our justification. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He is mediator betwixt God and us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And from all which I gathered, I must look for righteousness in his person and for satisfaction for sins by his blood, that what he did in obedience to his father's law and in submitting to the penalty thereof was not for himself but for him that will accept it for his salvation and be thankful. Now my heart was full of joy, my eyes full of tears, and my affections run over with love to the name, people, and ways of Christ. The good news is that after we have already fallen into sin, after we had already become subject to evil and to death, God in his mercy sent his son to free our heart from sinful bondage to open our eyes to the goodness of his grace so that we could see and savor the matchless glory of the goodness of God. So why did he do it? To display the matchless glory of God. Look at verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Friends, God's overarching purpose in all of history in all things, is to display his surpassing glory for the infinite joy and good of his creatures. The whole of the servant's work is a testimony to the goodness, the glory, and the grace of God. In short, Isaiah is showing us what the Gospels make plain. Only the Spirit-anointed servant of God can answer every human need. Only the Spirit-anointed servant of God can answer every human need. He alone can draw all people. He's the only one who can draw both Jews and Greeks to himself, compassionately deal with our sin, and all the spiritual and ultimately all the social and physical problems that we have brought on ourselves as a sinful race. He does this by regenerating and changing sinners from the inside out, by compassionately renewing their damaged hearts and lives. And that's not all, because he gathers them together the room that you're sitting in right now is the foretaste, not the room, but the people. The people gathered in this room right now are the foretaste of the servant's mission. Do you realize that? The people that you're sitting with right now are evidence that the servant's mission is coming to pass. He gathers us to become small but vibrant pictures of his coming kingdom. So while it is the servant's task to bring about perfect justice, it's in the life of the church where God is growing and sanctifying a new and faithfully righteous community, a people from every tribe and nation and tongue among whom you can feel the warmth of the rising sun of his glory and grace and mercy and justice. That is how the servant faithfully brings forth justice, even while we are waiting for the great and glorious day when he will establish it in the earth. Friends, let's conclude two brief points of application. 
to individuals today. Friend, imitate God the Father's delight in his servant Jesus. If you're a believer, maybe that means reflecting on his compassionate mercy towards you. How patient, how kind, how loving, how merciful, how faithful has God been toward you? And let that stir up your heart with joy. And let his kindness to you be a guard against your sin. Help it to help you set your hope on eternity. Now, if you're not a believer today, friend, please consider how ready, consider how willing Christ is to save even the weakest of sinners. Do not despair of his grace because of your sin. His grace is greater. And do not disdain his grace because of your pride. If you want to know more about this, talk to almost anyone in this room. Talk to the person next to you. Talk to the person that you came with. Talk to me. Talk to someone about what it would mean to trust Jesus to take away your sin and to heal your soul. And secondly, as a church, as a community, we should endeavor to imitate, embody, and proclaim the compassionate and tender mercy of Jesus. Perhaps God is calling you to show more compassion or more patience toward a brother or sister in Christ who is weak in some way that you are not. Perhaps God is calling you to more faithfully display his mercy to those who are in need, more boldly share the goodness of his grace with others. But let us be about the business of encouraging one another and building each other up in our holy faith so that Grace Community Church is known as a house of the glorious and tender mercies of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would be a house that the bruised aren't broken, the guttering wick doesn't get extinguished. Let us live confidently, joyfully, resting on the mercy of God, knowing that the Lord will create a righteous people through his compassionate servant. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy on the preaching of your word. Lord, if there's anything that I said today that is not of you, I ask that it would be lost and forgotten. But let those things that are of you remain. Help us to feel the tender, compassionate mercy of your servant, your eternal son. Help us to turn to him and to regard him with the same delight that you have for him. Help us to love him above all others, seek him before all others, and treasure him now and always. And on that last day, bring us into your eternal kingdom where you will establish justice now and forever. We ask it in Jesus' name.